0: Well, as I shared with you, this is uh, an important week for us, an exciting week, and so uh, several years ago, I began to hear of a church plant in the greater Columbus area, and uh, Dean Falks was leading that plant, and I knew Dean, uh, not, not fairly well, but I knew who Dean was, and so uh, Dean said, hey, I heard you have Missions Week, I would love to come and share, and I said, Dean, I don't know that you're quite ready yet, your church plant's just a few years old, and give it some time, and so they kept <laughs> growing and kept growing and kept growing, and said, hey, I would love to come and share at Missions Week. And I said, Dean, I don't think you're quite ready yet. it was a few years ago. And I said, just keep working at it. And so this year he called again and said, hey, the church exploded. You know, it's running a couple thousand people. And he said, listen, I'm willing to come for free. I said, Dean, you're ready. Yeah. So, so we invited Dean to come, and he was able to come. And so we're, we're just thrilled about that. About uh, 12 years ago, Dean started Life Point Church. 2,300 people gathering on the weekend. Missional partnerships all over the world. And uh, most importantly about Dean, what you should know is this. He recently confessed to me that although he can't prove in the Bible, he said when Jesus comes back, he'll be wearing a Buckeyes jersey. So I don't know if he'll teach on that today or not. Ouch. So that's That's a bad intro, is it not? So Liberty Heights, would you make welcome Pastor Dean Falks?
1: Well, good morning. Good morning. morning. Thank you. Uh, It's great to be here. I'm thrilled for the opportunity to come and share with you. Excited about the week that is uh, coming up for you all. And um, I know that Whenever you take a lot of time and you pray, and a lot of people put a lot of time and energy and effort into a week like this, um, sometimes crazy things happen. Uh, My brother in law is a minister of music. I tell the story sometimes in conjunction with weeks like this. Um, He's a minister of music, and uh, years ago, back in the I don't know, probably back in the mid 90s, um, Passion plays were really, really popular. These outdoor events where people would gather and they would tell the story of the last week of Jesus' life. And, you know, they want to make it as realistic as possible. So, for example, the Roman soldiers would have real swords and they'd clang them up against each other just to make it as realistic. As possible, in this particular play, when the Roman soldiers came to get Jesus out of the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the soldiers accidentally ran a real sword into Jesus's real thigh about a half an inch. So, in the commotion, uh, they got him off to the back, and uh, the director came back and he said, "You know, I'll just go out and tell everybody, but Jesus is going to the ER, right? I mean, it's just we we can't finish." And 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 one of the disciples said, "You know what? Um, We've done this so many years. I think I can finish." The I think I can finish the play in in the role of Jesus. And sure enough, he did great. Um, uh, The crucifixion scene was flawless. The resurrection scene was perfect. He gets to the ascension scene, and like I said, they want to make it seem realistic. So um, he's got a a harness on underneath his robe that's tied to a wire going up through the stage. They drop sandbags in the back, and he's really going to ascend and disappear out of their sight. So he gets to the end, and he says, "'Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age.'" And they drop the sandbags in the back, and he goes up in the air about two or three feet. But they forgot that this Jesus was about 25 pounds heavier than the other Jesus. So he goes up in the air about three or four feet, and then he comes back down to the ground. And in a moment of acting brilliance, he looks out at the crowd and he says, and another thing. And so all the while, he's putting two and two together. Oh, I weigh more than the other guy. I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to jump. On the back, they're like, oh, he weighs more than the other guy. They throw an extra sandbag on the back. So he gets around the end. He says, Loa, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He jumps. They drop the extra sandbag, shot him straight up in the air, hit his head on the crossbeam, knocked him out cold with a concussion. His feet were dangling like this up underneath the stage. So two Jesuses in the same town, in the same emergency room, in the same night, right? So hope nothing like that goes on uh, here with us today. But that's kind of where I want to start this morning is with the ascension uh, of Jesus—it's a—it's a pivotal moment in the movement of the gospel in the world. So, um, from Luke's perspective, the gospel writer, um, when he begins his gospel, um, he says this in Luke chapter one, verse three: "It seemed good to me, also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent." Theophilus. Now, Theophilus is probably a a pseudonym uh, for someone that Luke was writing to to explain the story, the narrative of Jesus. But when you get over to Acts chapter 1, he begins the book of Acts. Luke, the writer, again, he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, that's the ascension, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So what Luke says in the beginning of the book of Acts is, listen, I told you about what Jesus began to do in the gospel that I wrote to you, which implies what? That Jesus has a lot more that he wants to do. So the book of Acts, if I can say it to you this way, is kind of like Luke 2. It's like the sequel to the gospel of Luke. And so what you see when you get to the book of Acts, um, the book of Acts is the historical movement moving from the gospel of Luke to the early church. So it's kind of this movement of um, moving from God for us in the person of Jesus, dying for us, redeeming us, on the cross, being raised for us in the resurrection, to what we see then in the book of Acts, which takes place right after the ascension, which is God through us. The Holy Spirit indwelling us, God sending us into the world. And the reason that's such a significant shift is we have to have that in order to explain certain things that Jesus said while he was here that kind of leave a scratch in our heads. Like John chapter 14, verse 12, it says this, Whoever, this is Jesus speaking, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to my Father. Now, let me take a little poll here. Uh, Jesus says in that verse, people who come after me are going to do greater things than me. Anybody in the room today would say, you know what, this week I did something greater than Jesus. I mean, maybe this week... You caught a couple of trout, grabbed a loaf of bread, fed 5,000 people. I don't know. Anybody do anything greater? Anybody this year, anybody in your lifetime ever done anything greater than Jesus? What in the world does Jesus mean in a statement? I don't know about you, but I've, I've never done anything greater than Jesus. What does he mean? Here's what I think he was trying to say. When Jesus comes to the earth, uh, God come in the flesh, he, um, he minimized himself, if I can say it that way, to one physical body. He was in one place physically at one time. But when Jesus ascends back to the Father, the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost indwells every believer. Now, God in us goes throughout the world, releasing the power and the presence of God in multiple locations. You and I are called to go to every tribe, nation, tongue, all of the ethnos of the world. Now, the power of God is released through us in a much greater way geographically, and that's part of your call and my call. Which means it is incumbent upon you and I to own our identity. And what I mean by that is, you are the church. I'm going to say that to you again. You are the church. These walls, the seats that you sit in, this physical location, this is nothing more than dirt and mortar and drywall. I know because of our culture in the United States, we call this coming to the church. We call this physical. This is not the church. This is just a building. These are just chairs and seats and carpet. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to say, I am the church with me on three. Ready? One, two, three. I am the church. Let's try it one more time. Ready? One, two, three. I am the church. You and I are a part of this historical movement of God for us now to God through us that should be a force in the world. So if we look at the church today, we're kind of like, well, what's the problem? Why aren't we everything that Jesus seemingly dreamed that we would be? Well, there's a couple of events historically that I think we can look at that were turning points. Uh, Two of them happened in the uh, 3rd century, 2nd century, right around that time. One uh, was when the Roman Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity. I think it was 313 um, A.D. And all of a sudden it became advantageous to call yourself a Christian. And I think a lot of people began wearing the label without experiencing conversion. Real heart level conversion. Which I think is part of the issue that the church has in the United States today. Another significant issue um, was they started using a brand new word for church in their culture. They actually changed the word. Jesus gave us a word. They started using a new word. The new word was "kirche." So what they started. That means "God's house." So there's a a historian, a a well-known preacher from uh, one of our ancient church fathers, uh, Chrysostom. And Chrysostom said, here's the way Christianity tended to work in the first couple of centuries. A group of Christians would go to the public square where there was a gathering of people. The one that they had prayed over, the one that God had kind of revealed to them, or the leader would stand up and he would begin to speak in the public square where there were both Christians and non-Christians, typically more non than there were Christians. And this is the way it worked in their world. If people liked what you were saying, they would cheer for you. If people liked what you were saying, they would cheer for you. 100,000 people go to the Ohio State Spring Game yesterday, right? That's all you got. Come on. If they liked what you were saying, they would cheer. They would be excited, right? They would show some sense of excitement about it. If they didn't like what you were saying, they would boo you. Don't even think about it. Don't even think about it. So what happened was pastors, preachers, teachers, they didn't like this approach. So what they did was they went and built buildings and they called these buildings Kirches, God's house. And they brought the Christians into these buildings and they sat them down and they made them be quiet and listen while they taught and all of a sudden what you see is that whoever controls the building controls the scriptures. And whoever controls the scriptures influences and controls the people. And only a couple of centuries in, Christianity has already moved from a movement of people to becoming a monument that people today tour through and walk and look at and they're wild by the building. Already you've gone from an initiative it started by Jesus to suddenly now the church becomes an institution. So what I want us to do in just a couple of minutes today is I want us to go back to Jesus' first use of the word church where he initiated that concept with the disciples and just see if we can get a little bit of insight into what Jesus really meant when he started this thing Called the church, so we're going to look at Matthew chapter sixteen uh, real quick. And if you've got a copy of the scriptures, you feel free to uh, feel free to turn over there, and we'll start reading in verse thirteen. To some of you, these verses are going to be very familiar. Uh, maybe you're here today and you don't go to church very much, or maybe you've never been to church. Great, we're thrilled you're here. Um, so maybe this will be the first time you've ever ever heard this. It says this: Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, "Who do people say that the Son of Man is?" They said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter or you are Petras, and on this rock or Petra I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is one of the most uh, debated, controversial passages in all of church history. Jesus engages the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And they gave him a couple of cultural responses. And finally, Simon Peter says, we think, I think you are Messiah. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the Savior. You're the Redeemer. Jesus blesses that, that confession of his. And he says, here's what I'm saying to you. And in essence, he gives Simon a new name. He says, you are Petra. This is a play on words, small rock. And upon this Petra, big rock, I will build my church. Now, there's the dividing line, or at least the beginning of the dividing line, between Protestants and Catholics. Uh, Catholicism took that to mean that Jesus was saying he was building the church on the person of Simon Peter. Therefore, Simon Peter becomes the first pope, the beginning of the papal line of succession. Protestants say, no, Um, we believe that Jesus was saying he was building his church on confessions of faith like Simon Peter was making I think that the truth is uh, is more in the context the the first verse that I read there verse 13 says Jesus brought the disciples to Caesarea Philippi I'm gonna throw a picture up here and show you just a a modern-day look at uh, at Caesarea and the first thing that jumps out at you is it's a big rock it's five stories tall. It's about 150 yards uh, long, uh, about 50 to 60 yards in in width. The, the major feature of Caesarea is this massive rock. I'll show you a rendering, an artist rendering, another picture of what it looked like uh, or could have looked like in Jesus' day. In Caesarea, there were two temples right down there at the base of that rock. The one temple that I think that you see on the left side was a temple that was constructed there to, uh, to Caesar, to Julius Caesar, uh, kind of as a way for the people who lived in Caesarea Philippi. Because remember, this is not a Jewish area. This is a Gentile area. Um, but that was built kind of as a way to appeal to Julius Caesar, hey, be nice to us, over, you guys over there in Rome. And so they built that for his father, Julius Caesar. The temple in the middle, though, is the one that I'm, I'm more interested in for our sakes this morning. That was a temple to the Greek god, Pan, I'll throw another picture up there just to show you, remind you a little bit about the Greek god Pan. He was half man, half goat, uh, known to play, to play the flute. So what would happen there at, at Caesarea is uh, people would come to that temple on that big rock to worship. And they would come and they would have to make offerings to Pan. And what would happen in that temple um, is almost unspeakable. Not just acts of sexuality, um, pans, half man, half goat, acts of bestiality. People would go into that temple and do things that they would never otherwise do in the worship of this God. And you're like, well, why why would they do that? I'll throw up one last picture. It's a little more of a close-up on the bottom of that rock. Here's what they were taught. Here's what they believed. They believe the opening in that cave right there, where you see a few men standing at the opening, there was a river that, that ran out of that mountain. You see the little niche on the side there, on the right side of the cave opening. There would have been that's where the temple sat. There were um, would have been idol gods there that they would have put little images of Pan in there. But they believe the river flowing out of that rock was the mythological River Styx. And if you remember anything from mythology, you know that the River Styx was the uh, it was the highway for spiritual influence. So they believed the river that flowed out of that rock flowed all the way to Hades, all the way to hell. And that demonic spirits that left hell and came into this world traveled back and forth on the river Styx. The way that those spirits traveled and they were released from Hades to come into the world, those spirits, they believed, were controlled by Pan playing his flute. So now, think about it. If, um, if your child is sick, and as much as you know there's no hope, what you are being taught is that the reason your child is sick is because you have not been to worship Pan lately and make an offering at the temple. If your crops are failing and there's no rain, it's because Pan is playing his flute and releasing demonic spirits into your life to make sure that your crops fail because you haven't been to his temple to worship him and make an offering to him lately. So now this is the most um, wicked, evil, banal place in all of Palestine. And Jesus brings the disciples. I mean, these are older teenage boys probably. This is Jesus' idea of youth ministry, right? No self-respecting Jew would ever find himself in Caesarea Philippi, certainly in front of the Temple of Pan, and Jesus comes up and he brings the disciples there. And I'm, I'm virtually certain there's a long line of people waiting to get into the go into the temple to worship, who are hurting and broken, who are otherwise being asked to do things they would never otherwise do or engage in. And Jesus says, upon this rock, upon a place like this with hurting, broken, confused people. In the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low, the last place that you and I would ever think of, Jesus says, upon this rock, upon a place like this, I will build my church. And think about it, If you believe the opening in that cave right there is the opening of the river Styx, right, that connects Hades to this world, what's Jesus' next statement? And that opening literally is the gateway to hell. Jesus says, upon this rock, upon a place like this, for broken, hurting people like this, This is what the church is for. This is what we've been designed for, created for, to reach out, to minister, to love and care for people that nobody else loves and cares for and ministers to. We'll sacrifice, leverage, everything we've got for these people and not even the very gate of hell itself is gonna stop us. That's us. That's you. You are the church. So what does that mean? That means that you and I are called to leverage everything in our lives for kingdom movement and kingdom momentum. It means we leverage everything for it. It means you and I leverage our finances for it. It means we leverage our time, our calendars for it. It means we leverage our plans. Everything in our lives, the weight of this space, whatever God's given us, 20 years, 30 years, 60 years, 70 years, is leveraged in faith for kingdom momentum. So as you approach next weekend, It only makes sense that God's going to ask you to take a step of faith, that he's going to ask you to take a step of faith financially. He's going to ask you to take a step of faith in your calendar, in your time, maybe to go on a trip, maybe to go somewhere that you never dreamed that you otherwise would have gone. And I know it's very easy for you to sit where you sit and look up at me and go, well, yeah, I know, but you're a pastor and you're supposed to say that and I get it and so what I've done today is um, I've brought with me uh, a good friend of mine, Steve Griffin. I want to ask him to come up to the stage. And Steve is a member uh, of our church in Columbus. He works in the education, the school system. Uh, and I'll let him talk a little bit more about his specialty and the context of his story. But Steve went on one of our trips to Jamaica a couple of years ago to a place called Steertown, where the government has relocated thousands of people in Jamaica. And they have no rights um, they have no land, and so we help build squatter houses for them that we pay for uh, there in Jamaica that they can easily put together and take apart, and we're working towards the establishment of a church there. And so I just wanted Steve to come and talk a little bit about his experience.
2: Good morning. Um, it's really an honor to be standing here, and quite honestly, as I was sitting there, um, the mood that hit me was it's humbling to be standing here um, sharing what God did in my life with Jamaica. There's a couple stories I'd just like to share with you. Uh, The first one, two summers ago, I wasn't even signed up to go on the Jamaica trip. Um, My friend Brian Myers was leading the trip. Um, He is the uh, man who led me to get baptized, and he kept saying, you got to go to Jamaica, you got to go to Jamaica. Um, I had every excuse in the world not to go. Um, Namely, my wife was... uh, 26 weeks pregnant with a high-risk pregnancy with our third kid. Um, And I was like, Brian, I'm just not going to make it. So when he finally conceded that I wasn't going to go on the Jamaica trip, um, he said, hey, can you at least come and pray with the group that's going? Um, I told him, yeah, no problem. They were meeting uh, Sunday, a week before the trip, in between our services. Um, I have three kids under the age of eight, um, and we were late to uh, get there, and I missed the uh, prayer meeting, so I went into our 11 o'clock service, and I was standing kind of on that side of our um, auditorium, and during the worship set, I just hear, I want you to go to Jamaica. Um, So I kind of shook it off, and I heard, I want you to go to Jamaica, somebody's going to get sick um, and drop out of the trip, and when that happens, I want you to go. So we went through the service, and I just told my wife what I heard. I didn't tell anybody else because I didn't want people to think I was crazy. And uh, I saw Brian, to apologize for missing the prayer meeting, and send off the group uh, that was leaving in about a week. And I said to him, hey, I just wanted you to know that I heard somebody's going to get sick and you're going to drop out. And when that happens, you're supposed to let me know and I'll go on the trip. So uh, he said, don't say that. That's the, that's the one thing I'm worried about, man. Like I'm leading this. I got a scared group anyway. Um, and so I kind of forgot about it. Um, the plane left uh, Saturday at 6 a.m. And Friday around 3 o'clock, I got a text message from Brian that says, got your passport ready? I called him and said, hey, what's going on? He goes, uh, one of the men on our group, just got rushed to the hospital. He has a blood clot. If he would have stepped on the plane, it would have killed him. Balls in your court. So I went and told my wife, and she said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't think there's a choice. I guess I'm going on the trip. So I found myself on the Jamaica trip, and it was just a step of obedience for me and my wife. Here's my wife with two kids under the age of six this time, high-risk pregnancy. She could have shut it down right there. You're crazy. You're not leaving me. Can I get an amen, women? Yeah, so, um, you're crazy. And she said, I think you should go. Uh, So I went on the trip. Uh, My area of expertise is in early literacy. I work with struggling readers. I'm a literacy coordinator up in Columbus for a district on the northwest side. Um, So I had these grand plans. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna find all the kids who can't read, I'm gonna teach them to read, I'm gonna leave, they're gonna build a school, put my name on it, and it's gonna be great, (laughs) okay? That's how I thought. I learned really quickly that Jesus does not work like that. It was not about my plan, so I went there and when I realized, um, I, what I realized, at first, first couple days I was just in a funk and I realized it was spiritual warfare. I just felt uh, a real sense of guilt because I left my pregnant wife and my family. I felt inadequate. We were building houses and I'm more of a liability with power tools than I am without. Um, And uh, the next lesson that I learned, it was obedience to step out and go. And and then I learned the power of prayer. I've never seen prayer so active as I did on the weekend in Jamaica. And my personal experience with it is I was just in a funk, almost to the point that I isolated and shut down about the first two days that I was there. Um, And then one morning, it was about 4 a.m., I just kind of woke up. And the best way I can describe it is it's not a wake-up like, You wake up, you turn over and go back to sleep. It was like a shake. And uh, I just kind of woke up, got up, and my immediate immediate first thought was coffee. So I went out of my little apartment and was going to go across a a little courtyard to find where the coffee was. It was still dark. I come out, there's Brian, and we're crossing paths. And he says, you're up early. And I said, yeah, I know. And he goes, why? I said, I don't know. I I just got like rousted out of bed. And he goes, by what? I I said, Jesus. That was my response kind of flippantly. And we are passing each other. And he goes, dude, what did you just say? And I said, I don't know, man. I got, I got woke up by Jesus. I just want to go get some coffee. And he said, Steve, I was just in there praying, wake Steve up. I need him in the game. And he's checked out, wake him up. And I just looked at him and said, okay, but I'm going to still go get some coffee, okay? (laughs) So I kind of snapped out of it there, and uh, we went through the week, and I saw amazing things happen, Um, but with about a half day left in the trip, uh, we were building houses, and one of the houses that we were building was for a 21-year-old named Mark. Um, We were done with his house, and we went to the other site where the second team was building a house, and I was just sitting on the side of a mountain, looking at the Caribbean Ocean, um, and Mark sat down next to me. And at first he said to me, Are you all right, Mon? Uh, Yeah, it was very cool that that this is the exact moment and spot where it happened. He sat down next to me and said, Are you okay? And he thought that I was overheating. And I said, Yeah, man, I'm fine. He said, Hey, I really appreciate you helping to build the house. No problem, Mark. And then he said something to me, and I remember it like it was yesterday. He sat down next to me, and he said, I've been praying to God every day that someone would teach me how to read. Can you help me? And I looked at him and said, what you just say, man? And he says, now that I have my house, I have hope. Can you teach me how to read? If I learn how to read, I can make something of myself. And then I looked at him and said, you have no idea who you're talking to, man. And I didn't have anything. I just grabbed a piece of paper and a pencil and started to take him through what I know how to teach people how to read. He was the best student I ever had. That's him. When I'd ask a question, he'd raise his hand. And I'd be like, hey, Mark, <laughs> dude, there's no one else here. If I ask you a question, it's to you. Okay? Um, so I, was, I got about 45 minutes into that, and um, I started to wrestle. Like, really, God? Like, if I... I've got, like, two hours, and now I meet him and his desire to read. If I'm here all week, forget about it. Um, And and what I learned was uh, I wasn't there to teach Mark how to read. If if Jesus wants him to read, he'll make sure it it happens. He doesn't need Steve Griffin. But what I gave Mark was hope because I was able to take him through some things and go, hey, man, you are right. You're a smart guy. All you have to do is practice, and you'll get it. Um, The house gave him hope, um, and then... uh, I gave him hope and confirmed that you're right, you learn how to read, you can make something of yourself. Um, When I came back, though, I really learned um, um, that part of the mission trip, uh, Roman, our third son, was born at 28 weeks, a two-pound baby. Um, And because of the mission trip, obedience, learning how to pray, there he is, um, That. That picture doesn't do it justice. You see on his hand right there, that's my wedding ring. Um, Then I could slide all the way down to his arm. So we spent 90 days in the hospital, um, and I learned that um, through obedience, through prayer, um, and despite everything, when you have a baby in the hospital and it feels like things are falling away, there is always hope when you know Jesus. So um, it was good. uh, God knew what I was coming back to, and he had prepared me personally through my experiences at Jamaica. So I appreciate the opportunity to be able to share.
1: The thing that um, that I appreciate so much about Steve's story is that you see that whenever you engage the mission and the movement of God, that God not only changes the place, but God changes you in the context of the place. And that it's not an either-or It's a both and. It's a faith step for you that's going to shape you, and it's going to make a difference elsewhere as well. So in the context of that, I want to read you uh, one more verse, and we'll kind of land here. It's Acts 1-8, very familiar. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I guess if I could make a final statement to you, it would be this. Christian joy is becoming a river instead of a reservoir. I'm going to say that to you again. Christian joy. Because a lot of people tell me, you know, Dean, I just kind of get bored with Christianity. I'm like, who are you sharing with? Who are you praying for? Who is far from God that you know that you're engaging in some way? What trip? Where are you dreaming about going? What people group that, man, are totally unreached? Are you praying... It's the joy of Christianity, is being a river through which the Holy Spirit works and flows. Instead of just being a reservoir, instead of just being, give me, give me, give me, I'm going to create the agenda. I'm going to create the strategy. I've got a friend, a, a guy who serves as a mission pastor at a, a large church down in Alabama. And uh, last year, uh, they were praying and um, praying about people around the world who are unreached. Over 3,000 unreached people groups who have little to no witness of the gospel. And one of these groups, were, they were called the Tajiks. And uh, about two to three million Tajiks and uh, zero gospel witnesses, much as we know. So they were praying about it. They had no idea. They're in the Middle East. It's an Islamic, Muslim-dominated country, how they could even get in there. So they called um, our International Mission Board, which is kind of charged for our network of churches and um, kind of organizing our international work. And so they got the guy who was in charge of the Middle East, and they said, hey, we're interested in, in reaching out to the Tajiks. Who else is doing work among the Tajiks? And they said, well, much as I know nobody, but there was a pastor, he said, who called me about six months ago or sent me an email, and he said, uh, I'll see if I can dig up the email, and I'll send it to you. So sure enough, the guy at the International Mission Board digs up the email, sends it to my friend Jonathan. So he gets on the phone, he makes a phone call. He calls this church, and it's a, very, it's a rural, small rural church in, uh, in East Tennessee pastor picks up the phone. He says, uh, hey, my name is Jonathan. I'm from such and such church in Alabama. We're praying about reaching the Tajiks. And uh, when I called the International Mission Board, they said maybe you had asked about reaching the Tajiks about six months ago. And I was just wondering if there's any way that we could work together, partner uh, together to maybe maybe do something. At least pray together, together. And all of a sudden he heard what sounded like the phone being put down. On the other end he heard... Hallelujah! Praise God! Bless Jesus! And he's like, I was like, or maybe you can just do your own thing. We'll do our own thing and everything will be just just fine. The pastor picks up the phone and he says, you're never going to believe this, Jonathan. He said, we've been praying for the Tajik people here at our church. We have no idea what to do. So we just decided we were going to pray and fast for 40 days that God would help us somehow reach the Tajiks. And Jonathan You just called me on day number 40 of our fast. And God has answered our prayers through you. The most important word in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it's not the strategy, Judea, Samaria, it's not it's power. And I firmly believe. That until you and I are willing to engage the mission, take ownership of the reality that you and I are the church, move from God for us, thank you, Jesus, God for us, to now it's God through me, go into all the world, every ethnos, every tribe, tribe, tongue, and nation of people. That there will be a limit to your experience of the power of God in your life. The Great Commission, what does Jesus say? I will be with you. As you are going, What I will be with you. You experience the power of God as you engage the mission in a unique way. And I'm praying for you that if you don't have it, that as you come up against this next week, you will begin to pray. Maybe you'll spend some time fasting this week. And maybe this week you will take ownership of the identity that this is all about you taking a faith step that will both make a difference in you and a difference in the world. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't know Christ, then you're going to start with Jesus for you. Jesus died on the cross, paid for your sins, was raised on the third day so that you could seek, have no real forgiveness and walk in freedom. I hope you'll experience that today. Let's pray together. Father thank you for how you love us. How you care for us. Lord thank you for, um, for your giving of your very life for us on the cross. And Jesus I pray out of that sense of mission that we will live. I pray for God folks who are here today who don't know you personally. That today will be the day where they cross the line of faith. Will they take that step? Will they'll, they'll push all in with their lives? And God, I also pray today for folks who are here who are halfway in. Who, God, maybe for whatever reason, they feel like they've experienced conversion. They feel like everything's good. Lord, I pray that you will nudge them, and push them, and move them, change them as they engage the mission. I pray, God, for next week. I pray for an offering like Liberty Heights has never experienced. I pray for a movement of people towards missions and mission trips like this church has never experienced. I pray for a movement of prayer for people who don't know you here, in Detroit and in Denver, and in countries around the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
0: I pray that already, as we begin this mission week, God has stirred your heart. And and the simple question is this. Is church where you come, or is it who you are? Are you coming and listening, or are you asking God to use me, send me, shape me, challenge me, all of those things? Because I don't know about you, but I'm not super excited about a room full of Christians coming and listening and getting Christian advice on how to live their lives. But I am desperately interested in being a movement of God that starts here at Liberty Heights Church. And so I'm praying that you want to be a part of that as well. And so uh, next week you're going to have a chance to uh, sign up and commit to a mission trip. Uh, next week as our, as our offering come up, you'll see a little promo about that. But would you just pray throughout this week? Would you come this Wednesday from 6 to 8 and be a part of what God is doing in our international mission dinner? And just say, God, I'm available. And I'm not interested to just keep coming and sitting and taking notes. I want to be a part of something that changes the world for Christ. And so that's what we're challenging you with this week. And that's what we're challenging you to invest in and open up your heart to We're going to ask our missionaries to be out there who are members of our church. And so stop by and say, hey, how can I support what you're doing? How can I uh, come alongside of you to start a movement right here through Liberty Heights Church? All right. You let Dean know how much you appreciate him this morning.